Welcome to a radical discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damon Ossifer with your host, Paul Frederick. All right, welcome to Saturnian Sessions, where we get into the groovy, dark vibes that creep into the psyche on a Saturday night. And tonight, my guest is Spike the Percussionist, who's a awesome Houston musician who's done music, God, just so much over the years, I don't even know where to begin. Astrogenic Hallucinating, Fiddle Witch and the Demons of Doom, Morgue City, Delicate Terror, Doomstress, Unified Space... Um, he's also contributed percussions to some of my stuff, Asmodeus X and the Neo-Folk Verdandi. He is without a doubt one of H-Town's finest. Spike, what's up? Hey. Hey. Things are crazy. Things are noisy. How are you? That's awesome. No, I'm doing great, man. Enjoying this, um, this like a uh, holiday season here, just like, you know, kicking it. So, uh, tell me about, you, you're working with this, um, this project for a compilation i think or a tribute for this band really red yeah oh this is really cool so um the drummer uh of really red uh bob weber uh here in town uh local old school punk band uh if people don't know about them uh uh, people like Rollins and Jello Biafra of the Dead Kennedys actually is a really big fan. In fact, Alternative Tentacles just re-released uh, their catalog of material from back in the, well, I think those guys were 79 to 85, something like that. Um, and uh, so I was approached about uh, contributing to the compilation and uh, I, you know, uh, of course, you know, it was really cool to be part of something like this. But originally, I thought it was going to be just a local release uh, with a local label here in town. And next thing I know, Jello Biafra is involved. And uh, so I believe there's a release here in town and our, our local label here in town. And then uh, Alternative Tentacles is also will be releasing it on uh, their imprint. Uh, apparently, both vinyl, CD, the whole nine yards. Um, the project I'm uh, uh, driving with, I guess, on this particular uh, compilation is going to be astrogenic hallucinating. So, um, I'm, I'm recreating this particular song. The song I ended up with is called the fee. And, uh, also in the vein of, of the old school punk stuff, I mean, uh, their songs tend to be really short. Like I guess what Grindcore kind of ran with in the early days, uh, you know, the songs are like a minute, a minute and a half maybe. <laughs> um, so, uh, I've, recreated the drum part in its entirety. Uh, it was a really neat drum part. So I, I wanted to, you know, um, I, first of all, that's what attracted me to the song. And then, um, then, uh, I'm going to mutate that into a bit of some noise and stuff like that. And, uh, kind of, uh, have a semblance of the song in there. So you'll know that it is kind of the original, you know, where, it, where it came from. It's not just a mess of something else. So that's kind of the approach right now. That's super awesome. So I remembered um, that Let Them Eat Jelly Beans compilation that came out in, I don't know when that was, 1982 or three or four or something like that. No, probably four. It had like Ronald Reagan on the cover. And oh, wow. um, yeah. 
And the really red song was Prostitution, the song Prostitution. I had to go back and be like, yeah. yeah, that's it. So that's super awesome. So you're, are you working with those guys? Or are you getting to, to... You know, this is the first time I've ever been on a compilation where I had access to the musicians themselves. And, uh, you know, knowing Bob and, and uh, asking him some questions about what, because, you know, he's the drummer. So asking him what he played on that track, if I had a couple of questions and stuff. And he gave me a couple of, of uh, pointers on what he did and kind of his style that he approached back then. He was doing a lot of uh, uh, fundamentals and rudiments and stuff when he wrote that particular song. But uh, there was some of it that he still he didn't quite give me all my answers, but he kind of pointed me in a general direction because I think he's really looking forward to me warping the song into something else entirely. So uh, I'm going to do my best, you know, and make it as, as uh, weird, of course, as good weird as possible. <laughs> oh, I'm sure that's what you do best, man. I try. Good weird, yeah. bad weird. I try to make good weird. Yeah. And it's awesome, too, because, I mean, things like this, I think, help um, remind the world of the great contribution that Houston has had to, like, alternative music and punk and, you know, uh, different things that is just, you know, is is is, is I, I hope that that gets recognized more because um, there's just such an incredible uh, collection of, of incredible artists that have been coming out of Houston over the years. So I think it's really awesome that you're uh, getting a oh. chance to contribute to this in this way. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's a great opportunity. And that's I was just, you know, really happy to be part of it. I, I kind of stumbled onto it in a way and, you know, was kind of oblivious at first and then just like, oh, whoa, wow. Hey, this is this is really cool. And then. I didn't realize it was going to be as big as it, it as it's become with uh, Jello Biafra being involved and so stuff like that after the fact. So we'll, we'll see how this goes. goes. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Uh, wish you watch, wish you lots of uh, uh, luck and power and on on that. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I think that I was trying to think that when you and I first met, and it, it, tell me if this sounds right to you. I think it was like maybe 1999, and I think it was at Instant Karma. That sounds about right. Yeah, Richmond, yeah on <laughs> Richmond and the Montrose, a club that's like not there anymore. But and I think and I think it was turned we, into engine room and all that stuff later when he moved the owner and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He went to the engine room downtown, and then. Um, but anyhow, it's like we played at Instant Karma, and I think it was it was with Delicate Terror. I think you were in Delicate Terror. Yes. And yeah, the one band I generally don't talk about. Oh. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's good I mentioned him right away there. Let's get that out of the way right now. Yeah, yeah. We'll get that one off the plate. Here we go. Well, that's cool. I can't Because re- I can't remember what band I was in at the time. I can't remember if it was Morphine Angel or if it was Asmodeus X. Ooh, it probably was Morphine Angel, I believe. You think it was? I think it was, I think it was right toward the end of that. Yeah. And you kind of put roots down here and became Asmodeus X after that. Yeah. So. No, I think that's probably right. My memory can be rather blurred that far back. So, (laughs) (laughs) and then um, I also have to acknowledge, since it is like the Christmas season. Oh, you mean Yule? Yeah, it is Yule tide season. (laughs) That um, around December twenty second, and I think the year was two thousand five, we did a show at the Engine Room. With yes. um and and you did astrogenic hallucinating and I'm I, I was doing Asmodeus X on, on that giant PA doing a noise set on that giant PA was that was that was 
<laughs> yeah, all around. That was so much fun. But just doing a noise thing on a giant PA like that was just, yeah, yeah. I, I was lost. <laughs> and uh, and Psychonaut seventy five was there too. So it was like Michael Ford and and yeah, Dana Dark and uh, that was uh, early on. I, I didn't, I hadn't, um, I. I, I don't think I, I knew Michael for very long up until that point, and then I met him, and then we've been friends since, you know. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I, you know, I remember we did that, and and there were a lot of us, you know, a, a number of us uh, musicians back then. Yeah. I don't want to say a lot, just a collection, really, the people like playing this show that were like incorporating um, black magical themes into stuff, and yeah. and it was like just a little we're just like a little group of of outsiders you know and contrarians at the time and now it's like becoming more and more like a thing you know it's it's like right. yeah bizarre to me like how um you know how that's like kind of spread i i do you, do you see that too yeah there's a lot of uh things that you know i'll see uh in some cases you know there's there's <sighs> sometimes people just see stuff and they just use it because it quote unquote looks cool or whatever. Um, but you, you, you know, like myself and yourself and, and, you know, people like Michael and stuff, when we use these things and there's intent and that makes all the difference because you hear it in the music as well. It's not just for the sake of, Oh, this sounds weird. And it's, you know, this is, you know, this is evil, you know, or something. It's, uh, there's intent behind it and there's meaning behind it and there's a realism to it. You know, um, there's, there's, uh, um, uh, you know, you're delving into the, uh, more macabre side of life, the darker side of life and all that, those sorts of things. But, uh, weaving that into your creations and stuff like that. And, and that's that, you know, I hate, uh, I don't want to say like, uh, you know, well, it's just a popular thing now or whatever, but you know, it's the, uh, you have to kind of, dig through the ones that are just kind of using it for the sake of, you know, Oh, that that's a neat icon or that's a neat sigil. Uh, they don't even know it's called a sigil in some cases. Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, so there is, there is a growth in that popularity in that case, but there's, there's also, I'm seeing more, uh, people coming from the esoteric studies, bringing things to the, uh, you know, to the forefront. Um, like, uh, my buddy, Aaron, uh, with, um, ether research, um, he amazing, amazing music, but, but he's an adept study, you know, very much so. Yeah. And no, I like to say all the great left-hand path musicians these days are also left-hand path magicians. Yes. So what, what, what is your inspiration in doing music? So would, would you say, I mean, you, you're, you're, you're so eclectic, you're, you're a, a dark Renaissance man and all the things that you do. And you're also, I mean, you're a drummer, like, and I mean a real drummer too. Not like, you know, I, you know, I played percussions in red flag for a while, but I'm not a drummer, you know, you're like a real drummer. You have like this real talent and power. You've been doing it for a long time, but then you also like step away from that. And then you're working with, um, you know, uh, um, um, you know, noise and atmospheric stuff, you know, with like astrogenic. So, so where do you find your inspiration from? Uh, you know, and, and I guess that falls into my practice as a chaos magician. Um, the thing is, is I delve into the void in many ways, shapes and forms and, uh, you know, pull things up out of the murk that, uh, 
you know, uh, looking for the good weird versus the bad weird in so many ways. But the thing is as well, I guess from a chaotic state is I, it's like, uh, needing that fix. And, um, musically I'm always looking for, you know, or I need to cover all the bases. So that's why something like astrogenic, which is very extreme, you know, dark, uh, uh, black ambient noise and drone primarily, uh, that sort of thing is okay. That's just one fix with regards to, I have this, uh, creative impulse and I pull things up out of the Merc that, uh, I, you know, want to weave together, but that doesn't, uh, you know, um, sate the palette in, in many ways. So I have to, that's why I have such a diverse things. And actually things tend to be so extreme because of, of the scenario where I have fans of like per se, you know, say, uh, astrogenic that don't like one of my other projects or fans of one of the other projects that are like, what the hell is this? Yeah, uh, this is just, yeah, this doesn't make sense to me, you know? So extreme fans, very rare. Do I have fans of every single project I do? Um, but, uh, um, but yeah, it's, it's that sort of thing of, from a, a chaos magic perspective of, of using what I need when I need it to fulfill, um, uh, uh, you know, the needs of, of, you know, whether it's a spiritual or creative side of, of the house in a way, sort of, you know, uh, you know, one second I'm listening to, uh, you know, Ulver or Neubotten or of course Coil. And the next second I'm listening to like video game music in Hatsune Miku, you know, so it runs the canvas. <laughs> so let's talk about tools. Okay. And I remember one time I was over, over at your place mm -hmm. and you have an incredible studio situation. I, I have to, I have to not, I give you a, you know, much, much respect, much props for your amazing studio situation. But I remember going into, uh, one of your rooms where you keep all the all of the devices and yeah. you had a bunch of devices there and then you open up a closet door and I was there. Chris Vasquez, I think was there with me and we looked. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and you showed us into the closet with all of your devices, all your, your machines and emulators and modules and stuff like that. And it, this is like the biggest. This the, you have the biggest like collection I think of anyone I know. I mean, you're 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 the Howard Hughes of like no, noise devices in Houston. Noise, I think noise toys. <laughs> <laughs> noise toys. Yeah. So tell me about that. How did you get into that? How did you how did you get into start you know accumulating and collecting all of these yeah, you know, things? A lot of it started a long time, time ago um, with, with regards to. to I guess, I guess actually it stems from percussion because, because there's so many sounds, uh, or little instruments, uh, that they're kind of, you know, they do one thing, whether it's a cowbell or claves or a wood block or, you know, uh, an opera gong, um, you know, things like that. And they'll, you can get other sounds at them, but primarily they serve kind of a purpose. And, um, you know, as a percussionist, you kind of have to gather these sorts of little instruments in order to, you know, have those in your bag. If you get that gig, you know, you've got to have those, you know, uh, little instruments to be able to play that gig, whatever that gig is, um, all the different styles of music. And when I delved into electronics, you know, um, a lot of times, you know, uh, uh, you know, with a synthesizer and, of course, the addition of a sampler, uh, all the sounds of the world are at your, you know, right there at your fingertips in any way, shape or form. 
But as things developed, you know, the first thing, you know, uh, when I got my hands on a drum machine was like, wow, what will this sound like go through a distortion pedal? So it's like you start destroying the sound and making other sounds and looping those things. But then the advent of like these other, you know, uh, of course, the explosion now that we've seen uh, kind of like microbreweries that we have uh, uh, boutique pedal designers that make these really bizarre, you know, uh, noise toys, you know, uh, they may be one trick ponies, they may do all sorts of things, but it's like constantly chasing for that, that unique, bizarre sound. And, uh, so as the years went, I just, you know, like, Oh, that does this, Ooh, that does that, you know? And, uh, sometimes it's like a, $15 pedal I got on sale at, you know, at a shop that, that they considered junk that was like, oh, that's a beginner distortion pedal. And I was like, wow, that sounds amazing with like a drum machine going through it or, you know, whatever synth going through it. Um, and then, of course, there's the uh, bizarre companies like uh, Metasonics uh, who take uh, valve tubes uh, or, you know, tubes that were designed for like televisions or other things not designed for audio gear and the guy rewired it into affecting audio and it's absolutely insane sounding so just you know over the years kept adding to the arsenal because there's just now and, and and now i just have this library of different things of delay pedals and distortion pedals and module you know other modulation type things choruses flanges stuff like that and, uh, you know, I've had some of them modified even over the years, uh, like, for instance, a reverb pedal that has control voltage inputs. So I can send sequenced control voltages that change the parameters of the reverb on every, like, let's just say every beat of, a, you know, something going through it. And so that pursuit of just such a bizarre, uh, you know, um, soundscape has uh, led me down this pathway of, of not only, you know, collecting and acquiring percussion instruments, but also in an electronic form of all these little uh, electronic instruments. Uh, uh, you know, even some of the more really bizarre stuff like Shot uh, Lombard, uh, who makes really, really unique instruments and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, uh, wiring them together and, you know, you just happy accidents constantly of finding these bizarre things. So the library just kept growing and growing. And, uh, now it's kind of an addiction. I need to, I, I can quit, right? You know, I can, I can quit. <laughs> so how many, how many devices would you say at a, at a typical astrogenic show, how many devices do you use? You're going to ask how many do I have, uh, that I don't know. Um, it depends on show to show. What, what I tend to do is I'll design what I call kind of a, a noise circuit and, um, I'll kind of pull things out of the library, um, and, uh, add them to the chain for certain voices and sounds and then things develop from there. Um, lately I've been very focused on this particular, uh, kind of noise weapon called Norns. It's kind of a, a little computer box in itself that it has, uh, you can load a script. So the, the box itself could be a rhythm machine, it could be a sequencer, it could be a sound uh, manipulator sort of thing. And the community is really big with this box, uh, our, the support is really big. So uh, a lot of really cool scripts have been coming out for it that really do these bizarre things. And it uses... Uh, these rotary knobs called an, an arc, and it also uses a grid 
And uh, the creator of the grid, uh, Brian Crabtree, and I, I know Ezra Bukla, yes, Bukla's son, uh, is involved in this. And it's a company called Monome. And uh, they really, really make very unique uh, um, uh, devices. And uh, this one has really had my attention as of late. So I, I, I'll run a lot of things through it and record things with it and then manipulate it through theirs. But uh, again, it just depends. It's show to show. Uh, the last show I, I did, I only had uh, maybe six or eight things on the table. Uh, the show before that, which uh, I probably had, you know, it, I think I had like 15. I'm running out of table space. So I do. I also, if it doesn't fit on the table that I'm going to use, uh, I, I'm like, nah, OK, leave that. Let's do something that <laughs> can cover the bases. Uh, cause then I'll just keep making the chain bigger and bigger and moving that is, is a bit of an ordeal. <laughs> and do you still, uh, is, is, do you still do shows like at, um, that Natsuo, is that still going on? Uh, at sound exchange, the noise. Yeah. 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 The, at the record store sound exchange, uh, this, this kind of came about, um, I'm doing a series of shows called an exchange of noise and I started, a. this is actually the second year. So, um, I started doing them at the sound exchange record store and this came about because a good friend of mine, Richard Ramirez, uh, the noise artist moved out of town and moved up North with his husband and, um, the noise shows just kind of stopped and I need my fix of noise, you know, every now and then. So, I kind of threw my hat in the ring and started a, a little uh, show called An Exchange of Noise and uh, seemed to do pretty well. I have six artists. Uh, each artist has a uh, 10 to 15 minutes sec, uh, set to do their thing. And um, it's a very eclectic kind of uh, mix of stuff. Uh, some of it's improvisational. Some of it is just, uh, uh, you know, performed electronics and things like that. Uh, it's very, you know, live. My, my one, uh, um, I guess, uh, rule or, you know, the thing I don't allow at this particular event, and, and it's not so much of just, you know, a distaste for it. It's, it's, uh, I, I designed the show around the gear, you know, like these artists are using gear, they're performing live, whether it's an instrument, it could be two rocks and a microphone. Uh, the thing is, is I don't allow laptops. And the reason for that is it's, it just, from a performance standpoint, honestly, it looks like you're checking email or shopping online and all these sounds are happening, which are amazing, but there's not a performance, you know, like live performance attribute to it that, you know, people were watching somebody sit behind a laptop. Uh, so that's the one thing I don't allow. Um, but everything else, anything else goes. Uh, literally anything else goes. Uh, in fact, we hosted a show, an exchange of noise, did a show with um, Justice Yeldum, the Australian artist that plays a pane of glass, which is really intense looking and sounding. So, yeah, pretty much anything goes except for that. But, yeah. Exchange on, is that still on, on Richmond? No, they moved. The store is over on... Uh, Oh no, I'm forgetting the store location right now. Starts with an M. Uh, it moved over to the east side, the Edo area of, of Houston. And um, um, yeah, they take place in the store. I do them every other month. Um, so six times a year. 
And, um, uh, you know, like I said, I need my noise fixed, but not every month. So, and Astrogenic only performs at every other show. So, uh, I'm, I'm bringing the PA and hosting the show. I, I film them all and they're, um, up on YouTube under an exchange of noise. Um, and, uh, so all the performances, you know, are documented and stuff like that. So it's, it's, uh, I run kind of a tight ship with the noise shows. So it, it's, it's, uh. It, it, it's, uh, been doing pretty well. And also, uh, we've got the brewery eighth wonder brewery now provides the adult beverages for the performances. So that's kind of nice. It's, it's helped bring in more. <laughs> wow. No, you got a beer endorsement, man. You've made it. I guess, dude, you made it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the only endorsement I think so far. Well, that's all you really uh, need. The last thing though, which was kind of cool is my first time to kind of do something like this is, uh, since we're living in the month and year of of Blade Runner, and uh, also Blade Runner is my favorite movie of all time, uh, we did a themed uh, an exchange of noise, uh, and it was all uh, Blade Runner themed. Uh, uh, we we uh, took the movie, I cut it into six sections, and each per- performer had their one section of the movie to derive sounds from and write music inspired by, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, so we had the movie playing up on the ceiling of the, you know, just as a background kind of eye candy up on the ceiling of the store. We had some, uh, moving lights and, uh, we had six, five or six old, uh, televisions with video synthesis going on. Uh, and, uh, that was reacting to the musicians music and stuff like that. And, uh, it was really cool. It, it went really well. Uh, had a lot of fun, uh, had, uh, prizes that we gave away. I had a, a friend of mine, uh, uh, act as a blade runner and give, give out VK tests. So if you passed and you were a human, uh, you won a prize and uh, we had prizes from, uh, bedrock city comics, uh, the Houston arcade group gave out a uh, pass for the convention, which was happening that weekend as well. And, uh, yeah, it was a great turnout. It was really cool. Very unique. <laughs> that's extraordinary so we're gonna have to um put like links for this for the videos and stuff uh in the in the show notes for this episode so people can check this out because um i think people yeah. will be very oh, interested in that yeah yeah thanks and i don't think i don't think people know like the history of of houston's um you know noise drone and experimental scene which is actually pretty deep because i can just off the top of my head i can just think of you know in, in addition to the um sorts of things that i've seen um you know without you know obviously astrogenic and stuff over the years i remember that the old sound exchange on uh richmond that used to be on richmond not yeah. not too far from the instant karma that we just mentioned um i remember mortis you know, the yeah. Mortis, the black metal guy, he came and did an in-store performance there, um, yeah. you know, 2000, 2001, something like that. Um, and then I also remember um, there's that club, that um, room on uh, Westheimer, not too far from Numbers, um, that's been called the Mausoleum or Helios or different things. Yeah, yeah, that went through a bunch of different changes. Yeah, there was a lot of shows there. Yeah, yeah. and I remember um, that's where that's where I met. Uh, Carla LaVey when she was like touring doing her like noise thing and she like hooked up there with um, um, uh, a number of uh, artists who I think were connected with with uh, with the not not suo thing that goes on uh, downtown. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's like a long history of this stuff like happening yeah. in Houston. Well, 
Yeah. yeah like uh, um, Richard Ramirez, um, going back to him again, uh, he used to put together the Dead Audio Music Festival. And that was one of the first noise shows I was kind of involved in. On a, That was a large festival kind of thing. And uh, that was like a two-day event with artists from all over the country. And I think we even had a few from out of the country uh, perform at. And those were at, uh, I think the first one was at a place called like Spiritual Warehouse or something like that. That was Or one of the earlier ones. Um, I think I went on at like 2.45 or 3 a.m. <laughs> it, was, it was all night. Um and fast forward a few years, then the, there was uh, he did them at Super Happy Funland, and uh, those they were all always like two day. I think it was like two day festival and stuff, and artists from all over the place. It was really amazing, amazing, huge shows. Super Happy Funland. That's like a legendary. That's a legendary spot in Houston for a while. I remember yeah. going oh, there. Oh, absolutely. Coming. That's literally the anything goes. Anything goes. I mean, if like I was talking about earlier, two rocks and a microphone, sure, no problem. Yeah, when do you want to play? You know. Yeah, and and then even some you know uh, up and coming bands have performed there and stuff like that. It's it's anything goes there. Yeah, yeah. And then. Um, what so you also um played and worked with is it, is it core is that it the yeah. the suspension uh, yeah. group right so um yeah i'm the original music director for uh constructs of ritual evolution is uh what core breaks out to be and um that group uh has a bit of a long history but uh um steve joiner i still talk with him quite a bit the director of core and uh um it's still somewhat active. I mean, it hasn't completely shut down. Uh, we did close the chapter here in Houston after a series of, of you know, kind of uh, a couple of events that were were a bit hard on the group members. And also we had a, a bad accident where we ended up losing a member. Uh, on, it was a road accident, not not a performance accident. Uh, lost uh, a member and had the other members injured in a, a caravan that was heading out uh, to our uh, powwow uh, major uh, group gathering. And um, uh, that kind of, you know, closed the chapter here. Um, they tend to call me when there's some really big events and I'll go out to some of the two other chapters that are still going, which is the L.A. group and the um, Oakland group. And uh, Steve Joyner lives in Oakland currently. And, uh, you know, there's been a bit of chatter as of late. So we've been talking about a few things. So hopefully we'll see some things on the in the near future and get that, you know, back on the radar again, because things have been a little quiet. But we did a lot of giant shows. The Birth of Core actually was at Numbers uh, here in Houston. So um, that's a that's home to Core. And a lot of almost every one of our uh, most of our significant historically you know uh, significant shows were at numbers so that was uh, a lot of history there <laughs> yeah so i remember i went to a core show and i can't remember where it was dude um it was in a warehouse somewhere uh you were there you were playing drums um you know so oh, i think i know where that was was, was that, that where we had the robots, robots and stuff, stuff? Oh, I don't remember robots. Uh, oh, you don't remember robots. Okay. It doesn't mean they uh, weren't there. There could have been robots there. I just don't recall. 
there was one show we did uh, working with a group out of Denver, and uh, I can't remember the name of the group off the top of my head, but these guys built robots and stuff that were really amazing. And um, uh, we had them, it was kind of like a, uh, you know, in a way, like a Terminator future in a way, and the humans were kind of enslaved in, in the storyline sort of thing. So the humans were part of the machine and stuff like that. Um, but, uh, we did a few shows there at that warehouse, so it, it could have been a number of shows that, you know, that, 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 uh, um, any, any number of shows that you could have gone to. <laughs> I, um, I remember I was studying a lot of Gurdjieff at the time. I was actually working with, uh, the, uh, branch of the Gurdjieff foundation in Houston, the Houston, uh, Gurdjieff foundation at the time and doing the movements and stuff. And in, in that system, they, they teach like Gurdjieff teaches that there's, there's basically four ways to spiritual development. There's a way of the 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 yogi, the monk, and the fakir, and like the way of the yogi is the way of like the the intellect. The way of the monk is the way of the emotions or spiritual, you know, passion, spiritual devotion, you know, emotional devotion, um, uh, you know, which is represented by you know um, like early like esoteric Christianity and stuff. The way of the yogi is represented. The way of the intellect is represented um, by um, a Buddhism. Largely, he looks at that. That's like a great example of that. And then the way of the fakir is work with the the physical, you know, the physical body um, yeah. as as a way of becoming. And and um, and then he talks about there's a fourth way, which is a way where you'd like transcend all that. But that's another thing. But he, he says all these ways eventually lead to spiritual enlightenment, but they take different amounts of time to like get there. And right. whenever he talked about the fakir, like the way he talks about like the fakir, he talks about these things, you know, in the in the in, in the east where each person, you know, who's a fakir, he learns one thing that he does like one particular thing, like in, in, you know, like one particular, like say a suspension thing would be it. Or he learns like one, how to, how to like stand still for like, you know, 24 hours without moving. Like when you go to new Orleans and stuff back in the day and you saw the people who just stand there really still forever, you know, right. right, That's like a, that's like a practice. So all of this is to say, I'm sorry, giving you an awful lot of background on this. All of this is to say that like when I was like going and checking out the suspensions and stuff like that and and seeing all that that I thought that is this because some people talk about it like it's a spiritual thing. And so I wondered if that what if it if it is a spiritual thing for everyone who like, you know, engages in this. And I don't have a definitive answer on this, but I will state that when um jo- Steve Joyner was there, I remember really specifically at this show I was at, he was there. And he gave a, a talk before he suspended, and it, it was a deep thing. He was talking about his history or something. He hadn't done this in a while, or this is the last time he's going to do it in a while, or something like that. But he gave this he gave this this preparation for it, this discussion of it that was so deep and so yeah. sincere and so powerful that it engaged you. And then when he went when he went up. It's like you felt you you moved with him, right? You had a sense of like moving right. with him and that he, he engaged you all in this process. And not everyone I saw who did suspension does that necessarily. Some people are just like, yeah, pull me up. Well, you know, they, um, they just get to it. You know, the, the strange thing is, is I've been around. Uh, I lost suspensions, you know, just probably a few hundred over the years and um performing on stage with them. So, you know, for me, you know, my high is, is 
performing. I love performing. I love playing music live. I love playing in front of people. Um, so being on stage with this sort of thing, there's a lot of, of, uh, you know, do's and don'ts. There's a lot of rules and all sorts of stuff. But even once all that's all in place and everything's going and, and you know, going well, there's an energy that emits, you know, the only thing I can describe is there's an energy that emits from the performers um, that uh, it just hits me. And again, it's kind of in a way it adds to the performance part of aspect of it all. Uh, for me, like I get high off of that, that feedback loop that I get from the audience. If the audience is into it and you're performing and you're into it and then it starts feeding back and forth, you know, constantly, um, adding the element of suspensions on stage is really, really crazy, almost dangerous territory in a way of, of, you know, easily distracted because you're so high from the energy that's going on. You've got this audience that's into it. You've got suspensions going on, which are just emanating energy out of them constantly as they go up and you're experiencing that and you're right in the middle of it all because you're also feeding it with the music and things like that. And, uh, it's, it's a lot to take in all at once. And, uh, the first few shows were, uh, you know, I had to keep my wits about me on so many more levels because it's easy to be distracted. And, um, and again, you know, like you were talking about with Steve Joyner, you know, he draws you in and he's so educated on so many levels of suspension and performance, you know, with regards to that and, and the background of it, you know, getting back to the, you know, where it all came from. He himself is a native American Potawatomi tribe. Um, so he's so connected to it through his culture, even, um, you know, he grew up with this sort of thing. And then the modern primitive came along with the, uh, advent of, you know, like research magazine and stuff like that. And, um, all those things, you know, culminated in what he created in the end as being core, uh, uh, uh putting together live stage performance and, uh, you know, this ritual, uh, performance that, that, you as an audience member are privy to experience, you know, there's, there's some sort of ritual involved in, in this, uh, kind of, um, you know, theatrical performance. Cause that's what core is. It's theater. Uh, I, we used to always refer to it as Cirque du Soleil on hooks. So, you know, but, um, uh, you know, again, there's a lot of, uh, technical things and stuff that happen on the stage and all that stuff, but for the audience to experience that sort of thing and be part of this energy that's happening on stage, it's, 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 it's really a memorable experience in so many ways. And, and, you know, bringing up Fakir, the, you know, uh, you know, what a Fakir is also of course reminds me of Fakir Musafar, who I had the, uh, honor of being able to work with on one of the, I guess last big core shows that we did over the last several years, which took place in Dallas. And, um, that was such an experience. Um, cause it wasn't too many years after that, that figure, um, you know, we lost Fakir, And, um, um, so being able to meet him and perform on stage with him was just absolutely unbelievable. You know, a once in a lifetime experience in a, in a way. That's amazing, man. I did not know that. So, I mean, I know who you're talking about. I read that Modern Primitives book like everyone else. Um, mm -hmm. And, I mean, that book has like a, had a huge impact on our generation for sure. Um, and, you know, it's, it's like I had yeah. 
I had Boyd Rice on the show like a couple of months ago, and we ended up talking about modern oh, yeah. primitives, right? Because I mean, that book is like a game changer, and you oh, know, so many levels. Because I mean, it's not just the modern primitive. You know, there's the music and the art and all that stuff that's woven into it. So, yep. And so you see Fakir Musafar in there. So that so Fakir Musafar would be that's the first man I ever saw wearing a corset. Right, that yeah. that men can wear corsets. <laughs> you know, he told me that was a thing. So, right. so what was that like working with him? Like, what 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 did he do on stage? Actually, what did he do? Was he getting suspended, or you know what? Yeah, I mean, it was you know, it was uh, there was so many things going on uh, going on, and, and and it was a very very elaborate ritual. Uh, you know. Uh, uh, they gave honor to the north, south, east, and west to open the show. They closed the show properly. I mean, it was very rich, full, proper ritual, an opening to the, you know, directions and a closing to the directions. So we didn't leave things open. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, we still had the same thing, live music performances. Um, actually, our, our, our uh, uh, not to name more name dropping here or whatever, but one of our our performers uh, that was uh, that's a member of of Core is uh, uh, a guitar player. Some people might have heard of named Dave Navarro. Um, he's he's in the group and was performing with us as well, and and uh, he really caught on to playing some uh, unique percussion stuff uh, that I you know I walked him through, and next thing you know he had it. I mean he's he's such a you know such a professional on so many levels. It's, it's unreal. I mean, he can, he can host a TV show now even. So, you know, he does it all, but so, you know, it's like having, uh, you know, uh, working with amazing musicians and having these elaborate, uh, costumes going on, um, ritual sections, uh, of the show, uh, and Fakir's involvement, uh, which I believe his, uh, at one point he had, uh, I think he did something from the chest. Um, and, um, we had, uh, wow. I'm trying to remember it all. It, it, it's it, kind of a bit of a blur. I'll have to send some photos or something and pull some of that stuff up, but, um, very elaborate show. And, uh, again, you know, his involvement with it was just, just another level. I mean, I had already, experienced so many core shows over the years at that point that it's like, wow, where does it go from here? Sort of thing. And it's like, we've, we working with him. It's like, wow, we've, we've still just begun in so many ways because it was so absolutely mind blowing. You know, something else that you're touching upon here, mm -hmm. it, it, it's really apparent, like with the suspension or you're doing ritualistic things on stage that let that pull in the audience and, and and what this means is that basically you know the whole venue or club is is becoming a ritual chamber here for a moment and yeah. and 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 the entertainers are basically you know leading leading this sort of thing and that really happens with music too to an extent right absolutely. It's, 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 you're, you're you're a medium, medium. you know yeah. really i mean the, the musician can be a medium in in many respects uh um you know, having experienced Coil live, I can say, you know, that truly was a religious experience for me in so many ways because, you know, they were a medium for 
whatever was going to occur that evening. And, um, uh, through them, we all experienced something in that room, you know? Yeah. I I've always felt, I mean, this is something, you know, musicians talk about this all the time that the role of the musician is the role of a modern shaman. And that's like something maybe they talk about in, 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 you know, modern primitives, they probably say that in modern primitives somewhere, but you're actually like, you know, you're, you're the shaman. So for the tribe on behalf of the tribe, you're going through this sort of transformational process where you make a connection with something that is beyond. And, and so then within, within that, that opens the door to the fact that you have some kind of responsibility for what you're connecting with because everyone here is going to connect with it too. And and just taking this all back to this, you know, what I recall when Steve Joyner was giving this discussion, oh, he's a guy that understands that. He understands a sense of responsibility and he talks about it even more because he's like doing something that's really sensitive. Right? He's really, no, kids don't try this at home, right? Right, right, right. It's <laughs> not thing. the sort of thing you can just go like, oh, cool, set the ramp up and let's go for a jump. You know, uh, no, it's, it, it is extremely dangerous in, in so many ways. Um, you know, uh, the, uh, getting back to the do's and don'ts with, you know, when I was, uh, you know, when, or when core was so much more active, there was so many things I had to learn. I had to take a blood, bloodborne pathogens class. Um, you know, any musicians I brought on for a particular show because uh, the music would change from show to show. Sometimes I had uh, a whole bunch of percussionists. Sometimes I had, uh, you know, me doing some electronics, a couple of guys on guitar, uh, and a, you know, a violin player, uh, everything changed per show because, you know, again, it was theatrical. There was a story, there was something to be said or some, you know, intent we were trying to get across to the audience. So the music, the score had to change with every single show. And, um, again, there was a lot of, you know, there's a lot of safety stuff involved, uh, you know, that we had to, uh, adhere to. So, you know, because it was, uh, a dangerous environment, the, the stage as a whole, I mean, theater stages to begin with are dangerous places, period. I've seen accidents where lights have just fallen right off the grid, you know, or off of a rigging in the ceiling and, and, uh, ju- luckily just missed someone. Um, I, I myself fell off the yellow brick road, literally, uh, <laughs> working a show, working the wizard of Oz one year, uh, that was living hell on earth. Um, and, uh, you know, it was accidents happen on the stage. It's a dangerous place. And, um, uh, at the addition of people suspending in this environment, you've got rigging in the ceiling that are holding people up off the, off the stage. Uh, they may be spinning. We've had, uh, an, like a beam where we had two people suspended from their back, uh, you know, kind of battle each other. So they were swinging and, uh, uh, spinning around at the same time. Uh, you know, all sorts of things like that. So it's, yeah, it's, uh, it can be really intense in a, a dangerous place. <laughs> there was this club in um, New Orleans. Mm-hmm. This is like 90, this has to be like 97, something like that, 96, 97. And I I went and, and I can't remember where it was. It's not in the, in the, in the, um, in the, in the, um, 
old part of the uh, old part of the town, but right. it's um there was this room where we were gonna play at this club and someone had been electrocuted there. It's like Whoa. the it's like the bass player had been electrocuted on stage. And so then when I went, we, we went to play there and this was like Morphine Angel. So I was the bass player. So it was like, dude, you're going to get electrocuted on stage and have oh. <laughs> given me a uh, hard time about it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You're going to play this live. This is your last show, by the way. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. No, thanks. Oh, yeah. But no, it's true. It's, it's, there is like a danger thing on there. So do you remember, um, what was the band? White, it was a white snake had a fire thing on stage at some no, sometime in the nineties. And that's when that, after that it was, fire it was, was banned, light. you know, yeah, white, they basically <laughs> killed their entire fan base in one shot, you know, sort yeah. of thing. It's, it's a horrible thing, but Oh wow. Yeah. Burned so what do you think? Thing. So what do you think about that? Because now there's like no fire is like allowed on stage. Right. And I think like ho- hotels in general have a, like a no open flame policy, yeah. you know, I mean, um, is, I, I think, the thing is, is, is people really don't understand, you know, cause it's, it's, they, they're, they get complacent about the dangers of being on stage and live performances and fire is so dangerous. Um, there was a few core shows where we had fire involved, but we had people that went through fire safety courses. Um, there was, uh, safety, you know, people, there was not only like a spotter, for the person, like for each individual there, I remember there was one show in particular that we did where we had some fire on stage and each performer. And I think there was maybe two at one given time, but each performer had their own spotter with wet towels and, you know, multiple wet towels and, you know, like buckets of water. I mean, it was, if anything in any way, shape or form could happen, you know, we had safety that would just stop the show immediately, you know, or shop, stop their performance immediately. Um, you know, because they're wearing costuming, they're performing, you know, they're looking at the audience. They may not be paying attention next thing, you know, some sort of, you know, something on their costume catches on fire and they don't know, you know, and it's like, it's, it's so deadly. And a lot of people are complacent with the, you know, like, Oh, I'm just spinning this little, this little thing of fire or, you know, uh, uh, you know, it's a small flame. It's like, no, that's all it takes. <laughs> well, the next thing I you know, you're burning the building down and, and people are running for their lives. It's it, yeah. There's so many, so many things if I see, uh, anyone messing with fire and I'm, I'm kind of glad I've learned all these things over the years. Cause if I do see some performers doing stuff and I notice that they're not taking the safety precautions, I'm out by the door. Like I'll watch from afar. Uh, there's no need for me to see that up close because, you know, things go wrong. It happens all the time. You know, how many times have you performed and something went wrong? Whether it's something as simple as you had your string break on your guitar or, you know, uh, a pedal became unplugged, you know, little things. Okay. No big deal. But, uh, you know, playing with fire is literally, yeah, Yeah, playing playing with fire. fire. No, it really is. And so there's like two things that, 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 that come to bear on this. One is like, there's a lot of people who are intoxicated around, yeah, yeah. right? They have their yeah, judgment you're, you're impaired. You're in a party environment too, you know? You're performing in a bar in a club that has, you know, again, I, I have to explain this to people sometimes. It's like the bar doesn't care what you do. If you pack the club, cool. 
if you're G.G. Allen on stage, but they had they they ran out of liquor, they'll call you back. You know, um, they don't care what you did on stage if you know, because they're a business. Their business is to sell booze. You know, if you're, uh, you know, somebody like, you know, son who just does drone, but it's a packed house that night and everybody drinks, they're calling you back. You know, uh, you could be a phenomenal quartet of improvisational musicians, but the bar didn't sell anything. Well, uh, you know, cause they're in the business of, you know, their business is, is selling, you know, alcohol and, uh, creating that party environment and stuff like that. So, yeah. <laughs> right. And, and it's like, so there's like lots of, it's a party environment and 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 also there's also the the ritualistic sort of effect of this you know or like what genesis Peorage like to call in the nursery right there's a suspension of time while people are there especially when it's a musical act that's like doing these uh you know magical like sorts of things right so people like start to feel like oh we're in a zone where nothing bad is going to happen right everything's going to be fine everything's always fine and it's like, no, sometimes bad things happen. You got to keep your wits about you. I mean, whether, you know, you're uh, performing in a club or you're an audience in a club, you know, audience member in a club or, you know, like even, uh, you know, if we want to get into magic, uh, you know, even as a solitary practitioner, I have to keep my wits about me, you know, with things that I may practice or do or delve into you know, uh, same, same rules apply. Keep your wits about you. No, absolutely. That's a really good point. So how old were you when you started playing the drums? Wow. Yeah. Let's see. I think I started when I was, uh, I would have been 15 or 16, something like that. Yep. I actually, uh, was not allowed to play drums because my parental units didn't consider drums to be an instrument. All the, yeah. So all their friends, they, they hung around, you know, like jazz musicians. I, uh, I have an uncle that's a jazz musician, um, and classical musicians, you know, classical pianists and things like that. So anything else, drums weren't an instrument anything else was like, if I wanted to play piano or whatever, anything else. Um, and it wasn't until uh, I asked to t if I could take karate that I didn't even finish the question. And they said, oh, don't, don't you want to play drums? And that's how I, I got my first drum lessons. Wait, they thought, uh, they I, thought I, karate I was, was a child, better alternative? So my parental They thought drums were a right. better well, alternative? My, my parental, yes, because uh, since I was such an angry child, I think my, my parental units thought uh, or figured – They'd rather me hit an inanimate object than people. <laughs> <laughs> kind of wished I asked for martial arts lessons earlier. <laughs> so that's amazing. So then what? They bought they bought you your first drum set and you started jamming. Yeah, yeah I you know delved right into it. Uh, you know, it's kind of one of those things. Like as a kid, uh, I saw. Uh, you know, you, you get into certain things, you know, like, uh, I got into playing video games, but there was always somebody else who's better at playing video games, you know, and I got into like trying to draw, but I couldn't draw very well. 
computer programming even, you know, trying to computer program, but I don't have the patience for it. And there's always that other kid that's the super programmer, uh, even skateboarding. I used to skate half pipes and, uh, there was those other guys that could do all the tricks and stuff like that. And I never, you know, I was okay at it, but I wasn't that kid, you know? And then when I finally picked up a pair of sticks and started playing, then I noticed things. I started hearing the chatter around like, oh, you need to check him out. Or, you know, I became the kid, you know, that was like, oh, OK, this I think this is what I'm supposed to do. So I've been addicted ever since and never stopped <laughs> that or I'm too stupid to quit. <laughs> so you just you, you felt yourself. You felt like you were at the place where this is what you're meant to do. And it right. felt natural. This is that. Yeah, there was a natural thing. Like the first time I actually because I, I took lessons from a jazz musician and uh, I had sat behind like these little practice pad setups. And of course, uh, just a single practice pad, you know, because I was learning the rudiments, learning the, you know, the the words, the vocabulary of percussion. And then um, what's really interesting is the very first drum set I sat behind was uh, my brother's drummer's kit. And uh, and uh, fast forward a, a few months later, I ended up with this, he had two of this particular kit and he had like this big giant, you know, uh, Neil uh, Rush looking, you know, drum set thing set up. And uh, um, I ended up with half the kit and uh, five piece of drums and they're these blue acrylic Vistalite Ludwig drums. And I, that's still my primary kit today. I still have that original kit and uh, it, it, uh, it doesn't go out to play shows anymore. I, I was, uh, Ludwig did a reissue. So I was able to buy like a tour kit with the modern hardware and stuff, but I still actually play that same exact kit today. Yeah. So my first drums are still my, only drums really <laughs> other than a tour kit. No, it's extraordinary because I mean, the thing with drums is, you know, you've got to have a place to do it. You've got to have a place to do it. It's like all the other guys who end up becoming musicians, right? It's like, Oh, I play the guitar or I'm going to be a bass player or lead. You know, it's like, you don't really need a place to do it. Right. You can start like doing it like at home and, 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 and get good that way. But for a drop for drums, you got to have a space. Yeah. You and, actually have, you to have, have to have space, space and, and, you know, somebody, uh, either parental units that are tolerant of the noise and including some neighbors that are tolerant of the noise. I mean, my poor neighbors at the time had to listen to me, learn how to play. And that was for quite a while. <laughs> Well, I'm glad they did, man, because honestly, I mean, I, I think you're like, uh, you know, you're, you're the best drummer in Houston that I know of. Well, well thank, thank you. you. Uh, the, uh, though I have to say the best drummer that I know is actually my old boss. My first job when I moved to Houston was at the drum keyboard guitar shop, which at one time was the world's biggest drum shop when it was just called the drum shop. And uh, the owner, Keith Carnegie, who is just he's just crazy. You know, he's just such a crazy individual. I love him and he's so unique and his drumming ability is just absolutely mind blowing. There's stuff he will do that I'll be sitting there like a, you know, kind of a nerd musician, you know, classical, you know, from a classical approach, sitting there studying and listening to what he's doing and then he'll just lose me. And the next thing I know, he's back on the one, 
And I'm like, how, how did you do that? What, what is going on? What's, what's happening here? <laughs> so people can hear a lot of your drumming talent in uh, Fiddle Witch. I think Fiddle Witch and the, the Demons of Doom. So, so how did that all happen? How did you get going with that group? What's that all about? Oh, sorry, that little drop out there. What was that last question? Uh, so, Fiddle Witch, how did you get how did you get going with that? How did that whole project come into being? Ah, okay. Um, so, uh, the Fiddle Witch, uh, Joe Bird, uh, she was kind of she had a a group called Two Star Symphony. Um, and, uh, that was a group that she created with, uh, someone else and they were around for, uh, quite a while. In fact, uh, she ended up doing some work with Al Jurgensen from ministry and, um, uh, you know, Two Star Symphony was pretty successful and she was doing some things, but she wanted something different. She wanted something loud and heavy. And, uh, so she started going around town trying to find, uh, someone who could play this really crazy music that she wrote. And she ended up going to a friend of mine, uh, um, uh, Dave, who used to have a band called bow heaviest band in Houston ever, I think. And st I don't know any band that's that heavy still since, but, uh, he's absolutely phenomenal musician. That's one of those musicians that the first time I met him, he played, he was playing drums and he was playing extremely complicated music and he's not even a drummer. He's a guitar player. <laughs> but he's one of those, he can pick up the bass, he can, you know, anything you stick in. I, I think he's even played banjo. I mean, the, the man can do anything. But she went to him, and uh, it was funny, uh, the way it was told to me, she, she had the music on her phone, and uh, she gave him some headphones, and uh, he was listening to it, and she had a CD with her, you know, for, of the tracks, and so he's listening to it, he listened to it for a few minutes, he took the headphones off, pushed the CD back to her and said, call Spike. And that's how here we are now. <laughs> so, yeah, she Joe Bird writes absolutely amazing, beautiful music that's extremely complicated. Uh, it's it's acrobatics on stage and um, um, really, really intense stuff. Uh, and uh, she makes me work. Uh you know, my classical training comes really comes in handy, but she makes me work. And also, you know, the, with this project, it, it's it's really difficult music in some ways, but it's it's such, uh, uh, you know, fulfilling. It's so fulfilling to play. And the thing is, though, it's it's she runs a very professional kind of environment where you practice at home rehearsal is when we get together and rehearse. So there's a lot of times where we play these shows and I, she just expects me to woodshed and have all this material down and, uh, be ready to ready to go. You're on stage. Let's do this, you know, and, and it better be right. <laughs> so she can be a little intense in that, in that, uh, uh, scheme of things. It's all worth it though, man. The, the, the album, um, that, I, that I have that I, I got a copy, uh, of it's like, it's, you know, it's like, I don't want to say it's like rush. It's not like rush, right? right. No, but no, no, no. it is that. kind but, of like that because it's like every one, every contributor to it is an incredibly talented, powerful. It's like a power. Is that what you call that? A power group? 
I guess, yes. power trio, something <laughs> Power like trio, yeah. It's like a power yeah. trio, right? It's like everyone in it is like so like freaking good that it like blows your mind and you just listen to the whole thing. Isn't there, isn't there like a Metallica cover? Do you guys do a Metallica cover? Uh, no, but there's a little of that woven in there. Joe Bird's okay. influences are all over the place, so, you know. Um, uh, you know, she, she likes all sorts of things and, uh, uh, but you know, she wanted heavy, so she wove, you know, these sections that are, that are probably influenced from things, things like, like, you know, Metallica, Metallica and Godflesh and, you know, yeah. all sorts of things, you know, all good things. Yeah. So we'll definitely, uh, leave a link for that in the show notes. And then, uh, what about Unified Space? So Unified Space is a is a relatively newer project. This was inspired by a kraut rock uh, um, intent to be kind of a kraut rock project that some friends of mine had mentioned. And actually, uh, this is a few birthdays ago, birthday party. They uh, um, Austin and uh, Carol, they're some local noise artists that have a group called Illicit Relationship. And um, they uh, brought up this thing about wanting to put together this kraut rock project. Kraut Rock project, and uh, immediately I don't, you know, I don't know how far into the party uh, I was. Let's put it that way. But I signed up right away. I was just like, this, this sounds like it would be re- really cool, you know, having uh, kind of a modern day influenced Kraut Rock kind of thing, you know, with the bands, uh, you know, you know, going back to like the early craft craft work and stuff like that, and. Um, uh, it just went from there and, uh, we've been playing together now for a few years and, um, you know, it's, it's been a slow ongoing project, but we finally, uh, put some tracks down and we're actually having a listening party to, I mean, not a listening party, but kind of a listing of the work that we've done so far and see if we need to do more or we're going to move forward with what we've got sort of scenario. And, uh, um, get this album together sort of thing. So, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's the kind of latest, uh, kind of band, band thing, I guess I have going on per se. And what are you doing with that? So you say Kraut, uh, Kraut rock. Are you, are you playing drums straight up or is it like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sitting okay. behind the kid on this thing. Yeah. Yeah. So we, it's drums, uh, two guitar players, uh, bass, and, uh, bass player. Also, she does vocals, Carol, and uh, her husband Austin is uh, does this kind of has a noise table set up of some gear that he that he adds weaves into all that racket. So it, it gets pretty crazy, but it's very open. So we have these structures of songs that we kind of do, but they have this open uh, sections in them where there's this a little bit of soloing here and there, but it's it you know kind of is a, a feel and sort of thing. So the songs sometimes can be you know uh, uh, sometimes they can be a bit lengthy in in some regards because if we just feel you know we're in the moment and it feels you know there's a little bit of jazz going on i guess you could say and um um it just kind of goes from there so, so they're, they're they're very, very amorphous, amorphous i guess, I guess you, could you could say, say. <laughs> that's awesome i can't wait to check that out now you keep mentioning jazz uh, what are your biggest jazz influences yeah. oh uh well um uh, of course, it's all drum related in 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 that respect. Uh, um, uh, Bill, uh, well, one of my I have a holy trinity of drummers, but my one of the holy trinity is Bill Bruford. Of course, you know people know him from you know Yes and King Crimson and stuff like that. But of course, he later uh, created Earthworks, and um, 
you know, which is a jazz outfit. And, um, of course, uh, there's the, you know, the list of jazz greats, Papa Joe Jones, uh, people like that, um, that, you know, over the history, uh, our history of jazz in, in a sense, uh, I was, I was raised with jazz in, you know, uh, around jazz musicians and, and listening to it, uh, you know, everything from the old, you know, uh, Dave Brubeck, you know, would take five and all that stuff and everything. And, uh, uh, so I've always had, uh, uh, some jazz around me at, at all times. So, uh, that just, you know, tends to ha have a big influence, you know, underneath all this other kind of abstract stuff I tend to do. And then with the advent of a lot of, uh, of improvisational musicians like Hamid Drake and William Parker, um, uh, Peter Bratzman, um, some of the real heavy, uh, improvisational musicians, uh, that I've, uh, had the chance to experience, uh, a lot of those guys come from that, you know, big, heavy jazz world. And they've gone into this, uh, improvisational, you know, jazz, you know, it's can be a, a, a real obtuse angle for a lot of people, you know, that, uh, to listen to, but, uh, I get a lot from it. It's, it's such, um, you know, it's, it's music that's completely off the rails. How do you feel about, uh, Thelonious Monk? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, um, again, one of the greats, one of the greats of all time. <laughs> no, I love, I love Monk, man. I, I, to me, like jazz is like all sixties, early sixties jazz. It's just yeah, you know, incredible, I'm, I'm really, like, thing, you know? Yeah, I'm really into the, like, the little quartets and things like that, uh, trios. Art Blakey, I'm a big Art Blakey worshiper, uh, and that probably lends to my heavy-handed playing because uh, Art Blakey was his, his uh, uh, nickname from time to time was the Volcano because that guy would just smash drum sets. I mean, he would just destroy it. And he's playing jazz, and he's just crushing the thing, you know? Um and, uh, his ability, his, uh, you know, his musical ability is just unbelievable. Of course there's, you know, like Billy Cobham again, Bill Bruford, uh, you know, of course the, the buddy rich Gene Krupa, uh, you know, everything primarily from my world, of course, it, it's, it's all drummer oriented, <laughs> Joe Morello, all those guys, you know, the, the greats of the greats where it's like, I'll listen to them and, and learn something from, from, from those guys. And, and some you know, Thelonious Monk Jr. He's a Thelonious drummer. Thelonious Jr. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yep. Um, and, and of course, you know, it's it's not in, in most of it. Of course, the stuff I listen to is is primarily, you know, it it starts with the drummer, but uh, in some cases, like Vince Guaraldi, which most people know as, as the Peanuts theme. Oh yeah, I've listened to his music like fifty yeah. times, like today. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, of course, you know, around you know the holiday time, it's it's you know you always, they always had the Vince Guaraldi stuff. Vince Guaraldi. And I do listen. I have to I have to qualify and say I do listen to his other stuff. I have other right. albums of his other than the Charlie Brown Christmas right. album. Right, and and that's the thing is like he was such a project prodigy, and uh, died so young, and his music is just so timeless, and his rhythmic abilities of those those structures that he wrote on piano are just so mind blowing. You know, even of course, everybody knows the peanuts theme cause they've had it, you know, 
nailed into their skull for years and years. But when you really listen to it and you listen to what's going on in the left hand and then the right hand, and it's like, wow, that, that sounds like it should take like two people to play that. Right. It's just absolutely mind blowing. So no, it really does. It's extraordinary. Even if you yeah. try to play it, I've, I, I've been at a few different Christmas parties where I tried to play it or tried to get someone else <laughs> and we tried to play it together. And, uh, you know, it's a challenge. It is a challenge. You know, and it's, it's, it's uh, you know, and, you know, of course, you know, from a rhythmic structure, you know, from my view of things, you know, I'm looking at all the rhythms of what's going on and it just fries my noodle every time. You know, when I, when I hear that stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. Um, um, Vince Giraldi and then, um, Coltrane. I really love like Coltrane stuff. You know, his like, when he gets like really, you know, I, I can't remember which album it is, where he gets really esoteric and he's just like, oh, I'm just doing chaos. It's, it's when he has his wife, when he has Mrs. Coltrane, it's like, oh, we're just getting total like chaos. It's like I can appreciate it, but it doesn't pull me in as much as his like earlier '60s jazz stuff, where he's got you know a, he's got a quartet or something, and you know Blue yeah, Train, I mean, Blue like, Train, and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, or like some of the Miles Davis stuff during that era. You yeah, know, Miles Davis songs that were, you know, they're songs. You know, uh, there's a little bit of improvisation going on here and there, but the the uh, it's heavier the heavier. Uh, part of the song is this motif that is kind of makes it a song. Um, you get into the later years, you know, and you've got people like Cecil Taylor, who it just sounds like you threw a piano into a wood chipper and it's absolutely mind blowing, but a lot of people can't handle that for very long. <laughs> wow. I gotta be taking notes on all of this stuff, man. Oh yeah. You're, you're giving me all kinds of ideas. Cecil Taylor and Tony Oxley. The two of those, those two together is just your brain just starts melting out of your ears. Uh, the Cecil Taylor playing piano and then Tony Oxley is uh, um, playing drum percussion kind of setup, And it's just absolutely like if you're into it, you're going to be fried. Or you're just gonna be like, uh, no, I can't handle that. <laughs> it's like some people, you know, like myself, I could listen to White House. Put that on. Sure. I'll listen to the album. Uh, you know, and some people can take about 10 seconds of that and they're like, nope. <laughs> so I, you know, I had this, uh, old ho homeboy back in, uh, Nebraska guy named, uh, Chris Cortese, where we went to college together and stuff. And I mean, he actually had a fucking piano in his house. He got his piano like from his like father, and it wasn't like a great, it was like a, what do you call it? Stand up piano, right? Yeah. yeah, it was a upright piano, um, old school, you know, weighted keys and everything like that. And he was just, his only influence was Thelonious Monk. And that's it. That was wow. his only influence. The only thing he was into. And so it's like, so his thing was to emulate that but to not copy him because you can't really copy that you can't really copy like Thelonious Monk so he's kind of trying to do his own like thing um you know and he went his he ended up moving to San Francisco and doing his own thing but one of the things he said that really stuck with me and I always think about this listening to 60s jazz is he said what they're doing is they're basically it's just a riff you know it's a hook right one hook and you understand that as a guitarist or just, you know, playing in a rock band. Yeah, a hook. You're going to play this hook. 
and yeah. all they're doing is playing the hook. All they're doing is repeating the hook and Im- improvising on it. Just continuing to improvise within the parameters of that, you know, uh, three note or four or five note like hook, and just right. continuing to like expand out and improvise, and then pull it back in with the improv, and then go back out with the improvisation. Um, and I just thought that was that's that's really extraordinary. Oh to, yeah, to yeah. do yeah. that, it's, it's amazing. You know, it's like. I've told people or I've lived by this for years even, but you know, I've told many a person, you know, the, the, a jazz musician can play anything and to become a jazz musician is the ultimate thing for a musician in, in, in many respects, you know, kind of uh, a Buddhist monk reaching Nirvana in a, in a way. And, um, once you have the ability of a jazz musician, I mean, you literally can play anything. John Zorn proved that years ago when he went, oh, hey, guys, um, I want you to play this grindcore stuff. And the drummer, uh, Joey Barron, jazz musician, you know, established jazz musician, you know, he got these, uh, you know, New York players to, you know, do shred on his material. You know, John Zorn putting all this together with his uh, it was the group called Naked City. Hearing jazz musicians do grindcore is whoa. (laughs) It's like. Oh, you know, grindcore, everything's in four four sort of thing. It's like, no, I want you to play in seven eight, but we're gonna do a blast beat. Like what? <laughs> Excellent. All right, man. So now we're gonna do um, the hot seat. We're gonna do a, like a Christmas hot seat thing. I'm gonna ask oh. you like, like totally like Yule to the point things. questions, and you Yule. have to like answer it immediately. Okay. okay. A hot seat. Here we go. Here we go. You're stranded on a desert island, and you can only have one book for the rest of your life. What is it? One book. Oh, wow. Uh, one book. Can it be like one really, really, really big, big book? book? Yeah, uh, whatever. Or a, a like, uh, well, you know, when it gets to graphic novels, that's just one, one giant, giant book. One graphic novel. You <laughs> choose one. Oh, you know, uh, I'm just, uh, I'll, I'll just go with Sandman. Um, I'll have to go with Sandman. Okay. That works. <laughs> that's good. No, that. that's good. Good answer. <laughs> a lot of lessons okay. in there. I would go I'll with go some with Alan Moore, but, uh, that gets, whoa. Yeah. You get into the weeds really fast. Right. Yeah. Oh shit. We could talk about, have you been watching the Watchmen series? Uh, I don't, I don't have, uh, that's on HBO, right? Yeah. It is. I haven't, I haven't had a chance to see that. <laughs> I have mixed uh, feelings about it. That's, you know, again, getting to Alan Moore, how he spits venom when anybody messes with his stuff. Um, you know, I'm sure he just has given up with all that anyway since DC owns it. But, you know. You know uh, <laughs> yeah. No, it's rough. It's like uh, it's it's that that that's material for a whole nother episode. I'm probably going to do an episode sometime where I just rant about like the Watchmen and, and, yeah, we and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, we can talk about Alan for a whole episode if you want. <laughs> no, it sounds good. Okay, number two. You're on death row. What's your last meal? Ooh, last meal? Oh, uh, maybe uh, uh, chicken and biscuits from Cheesecake Factory. Oh, nice. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> that, I'm going to have to go check that out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And um, have you seen The Rise of Skywalker? No, I, I'd probably be the last person to ask Star Wars questions, though I have 
I have some people uh, that are huge fans, but I haven't. Uh, I, I kind of lost lost a bit of interest. Okay, <laughs> so that that defines my last questions. Where did Star Wars lose you? Ah, okay. Uh, the well, it started to lose me, of course, with those episode one, two, and three business. Um, I'm I'm a very uh, you know Empire Strikes Back is kind of it, right? And and actually, when uh, Rogue One came out, that fried my noodle. It was so good. It had a Blade Runner um, Blade Runner ending. Everybody dies. It's super intense. It's brutal. Um, it was absolutely amazing. It, you didn't need anything before and after it sort of thing. It, it opened the doors for so many things and it ended, you know, all sorts of things. It was such a tight story. It was so good. I was like, this is how these movies should be made. Whoever did this, the team that did this one movie should do all of them. But then, uh, you know, the first one, this first part of the last trilogy came out and I was like, that's a reboot. Why? What out of all the movies in the history of cinema, why did you guys reboot this franchise that literally that there's no reason for that? I mean, this, this movie franchise has generations of people that are into it. And why, why would you, you know, like I, I can always ask, you know, even hardcore fans, these questions, you know, like, Okay, am I talking about Star Wars or am I talking about, uh, you know, uh, what was that first one called? The first chapter of the third trilogy? Um, uh, I'm drawing a blank. Um, oh, you, no, I know what one you're talking about. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, see, I, I, that's how much interest I've lost already. <laughs> Anyways, of this last trilogy, right? The first right, chapter. Right, right, right. The one with John uh, Boyega and Daisy Ridley and um, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what's his name from Girls? Um, the uh, so chapter seven, right? Seven, eight. Nine. Yes. So chapter seven. Um, the uh, I remember I would pose the question. Okay, there's a cute robot running around with plans in it. Which movie am I talking about? You know. I would, and I came up with, oh, there's a death ray that can destroy a planet that has a weakness, a simple weakness. Which movie am I talking about? It, it, no one could answer the question correctly. And it's uh, the Force. It's a uh, Force Awakens. Force, Force Awakens. Awakens. There, yeah, you, there go. you go. Force, Force Awakens. Awakens. So nobody can answer the question. There, they, it, it, so it's again out of all the history of cinema, this this doesn't need a reboot, and that's what they did. And I'm like, oh, come on, please. And, uh, I, I mean, I even have a friend at Squ Skywalker ranch and I've <laughs> posed the question to him and I'm like, look, you don't have to say anything on Facebook or anything else on social media, blah, blah, blah. Just tell me, come on. There's just a reboot, right? You, you can't, you can't subscribe to this. You're not. Yeah. But anyways, so, you know, that first one, I was like, oh, why'd you guys do a reboot? And then the second movie, I got about halfway through that second movie, and I kind of quit caring about the characters. I, I really lost interest in the characters as a whole. Um, so this third one that's coming out, I'm kind of like, eh, I'll, I'll, I'll watch it, I guess. But I, I'm just, you know. Yeah, I don't even care about it, you know. So, so Force Awakens, I'm going to admit to you, I liked it. And I went and watched it several times, and I enjoyed yeah. it. I thought... They added something new about 
um, the stormtroopers, right? How like John Boyega is like, oh, I'm a stormtrooper. He takes off his hat and he's a guy. He's a human being. He sees his friend die. You know, I thought that was like radical. I thought it was cool. You know, uh, fucking when and and when you know. You know, Han Solo shows up and they walk out and Chewie's back and they walk out the, you know, the Millennium Falcon again. It yeah. it moved. Yeah. It did move me. It stirred my heart. Right. And well, I liked yeah, there's, it. There's those moments early on in the film where it's like, wow, you see Han and Chewie back together and they're on the, you know, they're, they're like in the middle of some shenanigans. Of course, they're, you know, you know, uh, about to get killed in some horrible, hilarious way. But, you know, so there was those things. Yeah. You know, admittedly, it was like, oh, that was so great to see. And, yeah, it is stirring, you know, in that yeah, in that yeah, respect. But when they got to the second one and I and I mm-hmm. liked what's his name from Girls. Yeah. I'm, I'm so pissed uh, off. Adam I can't Driver. remember his name right now. Adam Driver. Adam Driver. Yeah. He yeah. was actually, you know, because I got so I wasn't going to mention this on the air. <laughs> But I oh, did like watch the girls series. Uh, well, <laughs> if you if, if you if you roll that back, you notice I said that actor from Girls. I have to <laughs> yeah. admit, yeah, I, I watched that, that entire part. series. <laughs> I did too. Um, and I'm not proud of it. I'm not proud of it. I, I can't say I learned anything from guilty, it, but guilty, guilty <laughs> pleasures. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, I mean, he was a good. He was like actually in Girls. He was my favorite part of it. He's the only reason. He's the only reason I have any investment in this, right? Right. Yeah. Um, no, he's a phenomenal actor. Absolutely phenomenal actor. I mean, I've seen him in some other films, and he always delivers. It's amazing. I mean, very talented. Yeah, and I kind of liked him in in I I kind of liked him in Force Awakens. I liked him in Force Awakens. The way he has like. Oh, in his back room, he has like the head of Darth Vader and he worships him. No, I understand what that's like because that's me. I have a head of Darth Vader in my closet and I worship it. I know what that is like. Okay. So I identified with him. I identified with, I identified with the characters of this. I identified with, I identified with John Boyega being like, oh, I don't want to be a a stormtrooper anymore. This is unethical and and immoral. Well, that's how I feel living in this society, this warfare society that we live in. I feel like kind of that way. I identify with Daisy Ridley. She grows up in the middle of nowhere and no one like gives a fuck about her. Well, I know. I, I lived in Nebraska for a while. I, I identify with that. I mean, her whole character is like, I mean, this is how you identify with Luke Skywalker, right? This is why you identify with Luke Skywalker. You grow up in a place that no one gives a shit about. And you're like, you know, like you're Dorothy from Kansas, right? Yeah. Or your or your Frodo, your Bilbo from from the Shire. No one gives a fuck about you, you know. And you're gonna go save the world, though. You're the, you're the only person that can save the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So I I liked it for that. But then the second one, which I can't remember the name of that one. I thought, no, this is just stupid. Now they're just trying to mish, and it's a different director. They're trying to mishmash all these like social justice issues and. Oh, that's it. That's it for me. Once Star Wars is off on the uh, up, off on the, uh, you know, the social justice thing, I'm like, it's all over. You know, it's all over. And I, and then the the next one that's coming out, I don't even give a fuck. I don't, I'll see it like when it comes out on you know, Netflix or something. Yeah, like wait until you can just see it for free. Right. I'm not going to go to the theater for it. I went to the theater for Force Awakens because I wanted that feeling. I thought it was going to have that feeling again, because the the um. The last trilogy, 
which is like horrible. That's the worst. It's just an embarrassment, right? I want to forget right. it. it. It all happened with you know, um, you know, it, it's all just like CGI shit. And and that's the one where you go to the theater and you're watching the first one and you think, oh, I'm gonna get that Star Wars feeling again, and yeah. it's just like, oh my god, this sucks, you know? It's like <laughs> learning that Santa Claus was like, you know, actually, you know, a, you know, a Klingon. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ruin it. <laughs> so when did you see the original Star Wars? Uh, sure. I mean, did you see? Did you see the original Star Wars in the theater? Yeah, I actually saw that in the theater. And I was a little kid, and uh, it was absolutely mind blowing. I mean, the trailer. I remember seeing the trailer as a little kid, and just what is this? This is absolutely mind boggling. I mean, like. The first time you see like uh, I think it was like a side view of the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon and there's, you know, this character that's flying the ship. But next to him is this big woolly character. It, it was bizarre. And then, the you know, you see some robots and then you see these lasers and and then the the you know what you could only describe as a laser sword at the time, you know, and uh all these other crazy things and the ships, you know, flying into the trenches of this, you know, all mechanical, uh, trench. I mean, you don't, you know, the, the concept of a death star or anything like that. We didn't know any of that stuff yet. You know, nobody knew any of that. It was like, <laughs> we had no concept of a death star. Yeah. You know, it was, it was absolutely mind blowing seeing this stuff in a trailer. And then, so going to see that first, you know, film. And the thing is the film it's, it's, and of course kind of back then that, you know, there weren't trilogies and part twos and stuff like that for the most part, they, you made a movie and it was one movie had a beginning, a middle and an end. And that was it. You know, it's a nice, solid, concise, it's a good book. And then, uh, you know, you make something else, you know, Stanley Kubrick made 2001. There you go. That's it. You know, he didn't intend to keep making a bunch of them. He just made the one. That's all you needed was a beginning, a middle, and well, okay, that's a little bit of a art film or art house film ending, but still, you know, had a beginning, a middle, and an end, and and that was it. You had your experience. Um, and uh, you know, something like Star Wars comes along, and it had a beginning, a middle, and end, even though you know we're told right at the beginning of the the uh, opening crap that this you know this is chapter four right and um, they added that uh, later though they added that later the thing about episode four they added that later the first star wars is like this is just fucking star wars this is it right this is your war right (laughs) Right. this is your experience and then uh and then you know there was the the rumor that they're gonna make up three of these and that that this is supposed to be a trilogy of trilogies it was what? Oh, whoa. Wow. This, this is going to be huge. This is going to go way beyond the scope of anything else that's being made right now. Now, of course, movies are, they crank out three or four or five or more of the same thing over and over again these days. Well, it's garbage. You know, CGI has destroyed it. CGI has absolutely destroyed Hollywood because they know they can do that. Yeah. Yeah. 
and it's not like they like a conspiracy. It's just like because it's like a it's it, it it's like you know it's like organizations set up to deal with this, and CGI allows them to take care of stuff like more cost effectively. That the storylines end up getting subsumed by that. Um, and, and, and it's really sad. It's like Hollywood cannot create really good, compelling, uh, films anymore because they, they can't really produce the storylines anymore. And they're always like coming back, trying to regurgitate other things. They don't even say it's a regurgitation anymore, or it's a part two anymore. They just make the same movie again, just give it the same name and just, Oh, it's this movie. Like it's the first time it ever happened. Um, and I think that eventually they're going to do that with star Wars. They're going to make, there's going to be star Wars. And it's going to be whatever, episode four. And well, you know, and they're going to change everyone in it. Like Luke Skywalker is going to be black. Um, you know, Princess Leia is going to be like, you know, Indian or something like that. Oh, you know? like just, and it's like they're just going to change everything. Up and everything. And, 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 you know, it's like, why go down that road? It's it's there. It's been done. You know, it's a historical, you know, uh, historically famous, you know, franchise, et cetera, et cetera. You know. There's no need to reboot or redo things in that respect. You know, I see, you know, we see them do that with films all the time. Um, and uh, and I get it, you know, in in some respects, you know, of, of, you know, being more real world in the sense of like, you know, it's it's not like, uh, um, well, you know, like if you look at sci fi things like, you know, Star Trek and Doctor Who and things like that. And, and it's like everyone speaks English. You know, or everyone is, you know, a certain race, you know, of, of, you know, whatever they are. And it's like, okay, modern day. And even Star Trek was one of the first, first to, you know, you know mix, mix, you know, you know things, things up, up for everybody. everybody. You know, the, oh, first, yeah. uh, the first interracial kiss was on Star Trek. That, yeah, no, he, he kissed a green chick. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Among other things. Uh, yeah. Oh, they knew Uhura. Yeah, Uhura Captain, also. Yeah. Captain Kirk really got around. <laughs> you know, he got around. No, he's. But you know, the thing is, is it's, it's like it, it really shook things up in 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 so many ways. And um, uh, but going back and in and just redoing things, it, it it serves no purpose. You know, it, it's it's just it's like oh look, we can make it better. It's like well, you know, actually, I have a friend that works in the industry. Um, he's an artist and, uh, I met him at, actually through core. His name's Chet Czar, a phenomenal artist. And his day job is creating, uh, props and things for the movies. And so like, for instance, he created, uh, Hellboy's right hand of doom, the, the actual, the actual hand that they used in the movie, you know, the prosthetic and all that stuff. And, um, in the original, uh, film that they made. Um, and then also he worked on several other things. However, he did work on the fantastic four movie and it was, he made the thing. Cause this is the first question out of my mouth. When I found out he worked on that movie, I was like, are you okay, man, I gotta, I gotta ask you some questions, you know, but he worked on the thing and he made the thing look like Jack Kirby's thing, that iconic, big hulking thing with the big, you know, he had the big brow and the blue eyes and, you know, it, you know, he's just big stone, you know, the, the, his hands that had the real wide Jack Kirby drawn fingers and all that stuff. And he was given a list by, and I kid you not, Taco Bell executives 
of what to change and do. And one of the things was make it look cool for a 13-year-old. It's like, are you kidding me? Uh, it already. You're talking about the remake of the, the thing, carpenter. right? You're not talking about you're not talking about the um, carpenter thing, right? No, 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 from the Fantastic Four, so comic books. Oh, okay, um, you're talking about the thing from the. Ca- yeah, okay, yeah, gotcha, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. So, uh, the thing, Ben Grimm from the Fantastic Four. So, gotcha. That that first attempt at making that movie, or the second attempt actually, not the Roger Corman one from years from the '80s. Um, the, you know, and he had this list from these executives, you know, that were gambling with their money on this movie being successful. But the thing is they, they screwed the movie up in so many ways. And that being one of them being that the comic book is successful for a reason. And there's nothing that you can do. That's going to come by that's that's going to make it better. You know, what, what do you think you can do to make this more or, or cooler for another generation? when a comic book or any title has a history going back 20, 30, 50, 75 years. And, you know, it still is running today. And, you know, and and we see it all the time in a lot of these movies, you know, um, you know, the Batman franchise. I've I've never liked any of those films because again, it's, it's not the comic book. It's just, it's a guy running around in a rubber suit. Well, what Um, about Michael Keaton? What about Michael Keaton's Batman? You know, you like the, 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 the Tim Burton stuff, you know, I mean, it's Tim Burton. So it's, it's this, it's this kind of, uh, uh, artistic, uh, distortion of, of Batman. That's, you know, that's in fun to watch, but it is what it is. It's just this kind of Tim, Tim Burton's version of, of Batman, you know, um, but to see an actual, like, I want to see the comic book Batman. And we haven't seen that yet. You know, we keep seeing this, you know, either ultra violent armored up Batman or this, you know, other kind of thing. They kind of started dialing it in a bit with, I mean, I I know it wasn't a success, but the, that justice league, uh, Batman versus Superman sort of movie thing. But Batman started to actually look like Batman, however, he looked more like Frank Miller's Batman from from, uh, you know, um, Dark Knight Returns. But again, at least it started to look like Batman, you know, like something that we could see from that, you know, from that realm. But again, you know, we're talking about a, a comic book that has such a long, successful history and the movie industry keeps trying to, oh, let's make it better. It's like, no, you can't. Like, it is what it is. You know, why don't you just take some stories from this library of stories and make it look like that? Then we'll have something worth, you know, yeah, watching. watching. But, but, you know, yeah. they, they keep, keep falling over their own, their own feet. feet. <laughs> no, they do. So um, what do you think about I'm going to kind of switch gears because you're talking about sure. the the integrity of these films and 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 I agree with you on a lot of this. I we, we could go off on this whole like oh, I know. DC versus Marvel thing right now. Comic but, books comic books all night long. But, oh yeah. yeah. But no, let's like let's let's uh, let's talk hey, about Blade hey, Runner, okay? Book, because you called, said Blade oh, Runner. Oh, oh, now that's, that's a conversation stopper because that's, that's my favorite, favorite film of all time. And you're talking yeah. about Harrison Ford Blade Runner, right? 
Well, I'm talking about the the original film uh-huh. that was released in the 80s. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott and Van Gelis doing the yes. soundtrack. Van, G- yes. Um, um, you know, it's it's that's my it, when you talk about you know you're you're stuck on a desert island. Um, that would be the one movie. I would be stuck on the desert island with. Oh you know, man, I almost asked you that question. No, that, thank you for saying that. So sure. I, I put like black, that that version of Blade Runner. I put that <laughs> along with um, Episode Four and you know Empire. Yeah, right? I think we agree on that. Empire. That's oh, it. Yeah. Star Wars ends after Empire. You know, it's yeah. all yeah. garbage after Pretty that. Much. Except for Rogue One. Now is I think it's come back around. But, maybe Rogue One. Okay, maybe yeah. Rogue One. But 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 Empire, yeah, yeah that's, that's it. it. But what did you think about the new Blade Runner? Okay, so when I first, being that Blade Runner is my favorite, one favorite movie of all time. I have nothing else. I just have one film. It's Blade Runner. And when I heard, you know, it's that's Ridley Scott's Ninth Symphony. And not only is it, is it his Ninth Symphony, he actually had years and years because of the cult following that that film has in the, you know, the, just this, you know, um, underground in a way, you know, support for that film and the, in some ways obsession like myself with it, he was able to correct things in the film, you know, over the decades and, you know, where we had the original release, uh, and then he was, you know, well, there's the original release. Then he was forced to do this, uh, what ended up being the U S U S theatrical release with the happy ending and footage from the shining shoehorned onto it. Um, then, you know, of course he did the, you know, director's cut, then they did the final cut and, you know, there was all these things that, you know, still going unbelievably amazing being able to go back to that original footage and fix all the little details that you just couldn't fix at the time or didn't the technology didn't even exist to fix at the time. And, uh, you know, like, for instance, erasing the cables that are lifting the, the spinner, the cop car flying up off the ground. The You know, there's cables that you can see in the original print that were kind of hidden by the rain, but now they just took them out. They're gone, you know, um, uh, correcting the amount of the, the number of, of replicants running around the original movie. There were supposed to be, uh, uh, five running around, not four. And, uh, there were six that is, yeah, six that escaped and one was killed running through an electrical field and there's supposed to be five, but one of those got scenes got cut. Oh, well, I know I can go on for days on this, but the thing is, is there's so much about that film and it's, it, you know, has a beginning, middle and end again. It's, 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 it's a perfect movie for me. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, morbidly, uh, uh, good ending, you know, it ends, everybody dies, it's over, blah, blah, blah. They're all replicants, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Fast forward, and then Ridley Scott announced he's going to make a part two to it. Oh, I was worse. The speaking of Alan Moore, I was worse than Alan Moore. I was kicking people off social media if they even mentioned the new Blade Runner. I was so mad about it because I'd seen what he had done with his other films, you know, like more stuff with Alien and things like that, where it was like, you know, I really like that whole uh, Rod Serling approach, like with the Twilight Zone, where 
you know, this happens and you experience this weird story and this, these strange happenings, I don't need you answering all the questions of why it happened and how it happened and all this stuff. And who cares? Alien was such a great movie. Yeah. Alien's such a great film. And, you know, even Aliens was a great roller coaster ride. You know, I enjoy that film. It's great. But, you know, going back and answering all the questions and like, where did the aliens come from? And, you know, whether, you know, this, that, and the other, and this other race. And, uh, you know, I don't need all those answers. I don't need a, a, a child asking, but why all the time and somebody answering the questions and with Blade Runner, not, no, not a fan. I, again, it just gets that, you know, it gets into that whole, like, uh, I'm going to explain I'm going, to, I'm going to explain alien to you and what happened and why and all this stuff. So when 2049 was announced and that they were going to do this Blade Runner 2049, I lost it. I was so mad. And then I had a friend of mine, uh, actually that works at Skywalker ranch. And, and he was like, Hey man, look, I just saw it. It's unbelievably amazing. Uh, the work that, you know, some of the guys here did on it is really amazing. Just from an audio perspective, you're going to absolutely enjoy this film. It just, that in of itself sounds amazing. And they, you know, so I was like, oh, okay. And then another friend of mine, you know, uh, she loves the movie just as much as I do. And we were, we finally, we were talking about it. We were kind of complaining to each other about it. And then we finally said, you know what, let's just rip the bandaid off. Let's go, let's go like on a Tuesday night where there's, you know, last showing, there's not going to be anybody in the film except for hardcore Blade Runner, you know, uh, people and stuff like that. And, uh, we went and I have to say, I, I didn't hate it. I couldn't hate it. I wanted to hate it and I didn't, you know, uh, it was, it was good. It was a part two. There was no handholding. They didn't explain anything to you. If you didn't know the first movie, the second movie would absolutely be just a jumble of nonsense to you. Nothing would make sense. They didn't do any like, well, these are what the replicants are. This is what that is. This is, you know, this is why this, ha you know, sort of thing. It was just was a part two. Like you just finished part one and now you watch part two and there it was. Um, they didn't mess with the Vangelis music, which I really, really appreciated. Um, uh, um, what was it? Zimmer. And I know somebody else worked on the film. Uh, they used themes from Vangelis and they wove them into certain scenes. And 90% of what those guys did was soundscape, which sounded great. I mean, you know, those guys have the, the really coolest <laughs> sound design toys in the world. And they, they made something really incredible. Um, but would I watch it again? I don't know. Um, I enjoyed it. It was, uh, I couldn't hate it. Couldn't bring myself to hate it, but, um, I, you know, I, I, I didn't go back and watch it again. Yeah. Who knows? You know, Blade Runner, I've lost count of how many times I've seen it, but yeah, no, I agree a hundred percent, dude. It's like the, 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 um, the sequel for it that they made. It's like, yeah. no, it's got some good mo. It, it, it pulls forward all of the great things about the early one you know like they they took like the huge 
like the thing with the huge Asian woman, you know, like the advertisements that are flying over the city, like on a blimp or whatever. And she's like taking a pill or whatever. Join the off-world colonies. You know, a new life awaits you in the off-world colonies. And they take that and they extend that with like these huge holographic images. And that's all cool. And it's like, you know, this guy's a replicant. He's trying to find out who I am, right? And that's actually good because... If you go back to the um, like the like the the Philip K. Dick book, right? Androids Dream of Electric right, Sheep. Right. It's re- that's what the right. original one is really. That's what it's really about. It's identity, and that's one thing that like yeah, you know. Well, the thing is, uh, Philip K. Dick did so much with the concept of memories. You know, like what do you know? Like what has been put in your mind, um, and a bit of uh, you know a parallel path or parallel, you know, or something that's been influenced by Philip K. Dick as well as Blade Runner, of course, is the ghost in the shell series. And that touches a lot on those Philip K. Dick ideas of, of implanted memories, you know, things that you just, that's what, you know, you, you've, you, you have these memories and, uh, it's a way of programming someone in a way and in, in which we saw more of in 2049 where, you know, a replicant was programmed with these memories, but it was as it was a message in a bottle sort of scenario, which was a kind of yeah, different, different take on the thing. You know, that was, that was really cool. Now, and that's a, that's like a recurring theme in PKD, right? Like identity and how I'm going to figure out who I am. I'm going to get a message in a bottle, you know, that says, Oh no, this is, here's a message from someone else is going to let you know who you are. Right. And, you know, PKD is just obsessed with this stuff, right? And, you know, one of the questions about, like, one of the criticisms about the first one is that it's not totally, you know, the whole thing is that Decker doesn't know if he's real, right? And it's like, as, as he, like, added stuff, you know, to that movie later on, he kind of expanded on that. But that's one of the things, if there's anything lost from the book, it's like... That's the thing. Like at the very beginning of the book, it's like Decker sees his like um, his partner like like gets shot. You know, they're out on a mission. His partner gets shot and his partner like wires come out of his body. He's like, oh, shit, Decker. Fuck. I was an android. Yeah. And I didn't even know it. I didn't even know I was an android. And so that immediately Decker's like, fuck, how do I know I'm not an android? And that's supposed to be the whole thing. And it's like ambiguous at the end of Blade Runner, right? Oh, do I, am I an android or not? You know? And the sequel uh, with Ryan, Ryan Gosling, I mean, that's his thing. I'm an android, but where do I come from, right? So he's all about my origins. How do I know who I am, you know? Right. What, 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 what makes, makes you you? And, and that idea of that and the concepts of that, which Philip K. Dick, you know, delved into a lot is really mind blowing. Cause I mean, what makes us is our memories. No, it is absolutely a hundred percent. And you go back to like where you came from and it's like, I know I came from these people, but at the same time you're getting information all the time. I mean, that's a world we live in. Right. We live in an information society. And and even now, like where we take in so much more information constantly on a daily basis, like trying to keep up with it, you know, you can watch YouTube videos and live news feeds and, and uh, 
you know, moment by moment as things change all over the world globally, like as, you know, riots happen in Hong Kong, we're seeing it in real time. We're not seeing it a day later or so when the news, the news wire finally gets over to us. Yeah. Yes, sir. You watching that shit in Hong Kong? What do you think about that? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's... I, I, I'm, I'm with them about it. You know, I think they, yeah, me too. they want to have, you know, this freedom of choice and things like that. And, uh, um, the, you know, Chinese government, uh, can be, you know, uh, a bit of a, a, a heavy handed kind of, uh, yeah. no, they can be kind of communist sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of, kind of communist uh, with their uh, views on certain things and the way things are handled and stuff like that. So talk about, uh, you know, uh, a David and Goliath kind of situation in many, many ways, you know. Yeah. So no, it I is a hundred percent. And it's like, you know, I, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't know what we can do about it, but, um, you know, I hope that like Hong Kong remains free from uh, the CCP as they have over the years, because that's how we've had this like great cultural exchange. I mean, all of the great, I mean, fucking, I mean, do you like, you know, uh, Kung Fu movies and, and, and Bruce Lee and Crouching yeah. Tiger, Hidden Bra- Hidden Dragon? I mean, all that comes from Hong Kong because they had a film industry because they had a free market, right? And, you know, I mean, that's that's why we even know about that. I mean, I I think a lot of people in the West are like, you know, oh, wow, that's all. No, that's like Hong Kong. Just one little pocket, you know, Um, I hope that they like it's a big country. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's ground zero for all that stuff. And it's just it's amazing, you know, the the uh, and, you know, how how much that's influenced our culture, even as a, a, you know, in, you know, in so many different ways, you know, having, you know, having that influence over the years, you know, and we even see it in, uh, modern day movies, you know, of course, you know, you got the Tarantino stuff and things like that. That's right off the page there. Or, you know, Blade Runner, Blade Runner, Blade Runner has all this like Asian like influence in it. Right. You know, just like, you know, mass society. Yeah. This, this like, society that kind of everybody's living on top of each other and everything is everywhere. Uh, you know, like, uh, you're, you're constantly bombarded with all sorts of, of media and, uh, you know, like all the signs, like all the neon signs and stuff in Blade Runner where they're, there's all over the place, you know, you can't get away from, you know, some sort of ad or, or media that's kind of trying to influence you, you know, and they, again, they touch on that in 2049 where not only do you have, these ads bombarding you, the ads will actually communicate with you and talk to you. Yeah. hundred percent. All right, man. So, Hey, are we going to listen to a song? All right, Spike, what song are we going to listen to now? Uh, we're going to hear a little bit of fiddle, Witch and the demons of doom, a song called bone chomper from our, uh, debut album by the same name Fiddle Witch and the Demons of Doom awesome alright y'all go 
check our shit out online and find stuff about Spike and Fiddle Witch. And hey, without two.